Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh on a, a lovely, well, it's a, it's a Monday, it's a Monday afternoon. It's just gone afternoon, of course, uh, 12. We've, we've almost crossed in the meridian, mother. I think um, as a while nowadays is around about 22 minutes past. You're tuned into Market Sahaba online radio. I'm Adamine Templeton. Jazak, mother, for joining us. This is uh, Eye on the World. And, well, quite a few things going on around in the world today at the moment. I think that most important thing we need to keep an eye on is there's nearly 29,000 deaths in Gaza as the result of Israel's genocide. A lot of applications uh, coming uh, before the International Court of Justice. It's amazing it's taken such a long time for many of these issues to be decided by the International Court. Uh, so many times uh, these issues have been called for a vote at the uh, United Nations Security Council, and of course it's been vetoed by the United States. Now increasingly countries are turning around and they're saying, listen, this is no longer a matter of popularity. It's no, not, no longer a matter of voting. This isn't the United States debt ceiling, you see. The United States having the dollar as the world's reserve currency is, uh, is, is, is able to make uh, a repayment of debt a popularity contest. Yes, that's right. America believes that uh, American democracy can, can solve everything in the world. Um, although the Americans don't like American democracy, as um, we've pointed out on shows before, um, <clears throat> repeated attempts uh, throughout the history of the poor, sad country, just in our lifetimes, like you know, since the time of, um, of Bill Clinton. You had uh, you had the um, Republicans, Republicans trying to get rid of Bill Clinton because of the Monica Zelensky affair. Yeah, when he uh, had to go on national television, say I had no relationship with that woman, and everyone said yes, yes, we know what you mean by that. Uh, and in actual fact, he did. Well, anyway, the sordid details we won't go into. After Bill Clinton. Um, the the Democrats decided, well, if the Republicans can try and get rid of our president, we'll try and get rid of theirs. So when um, George W. Bush followed Clinton, they immediately started trying to get, um, well, they actually, you know what, they didn't try to get rid of George W. Bush because they both kind of like hunkered down on that. You know, I, I, I say repeatedly on the show, America is a one-party state arguing over who's going to pay the bill which is why they think it's a matter of democracy. They can just vote. They can just vote as to whether or not they're going to pay their debts back. Every year, the United States government says, well, guys, we're going to spend too much again. What are we going to do? Well, we'll just raise that old debt ceiling. Yeah, they've risen the debt ceiling so much. During Obama's time, the United States government's debt ceiling, in, in terms of how much they're exceeding their national budget, well, their debt ceiling today is sitting at $33 trillion. $33 trillion. Uh, when when Tito Mbawene came in as governor of the Reserve Bank in 1998, it caused like, such fear in South Africa because like this communist, uh, laborist guy who actually just turned out to be such a nice, big, cuddly little reserve bank governor. He was able to roll over and uh, let the capitalist scratch his little belly. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's been a long time since someone described Tito Mbawene's belly as a little belly. 
Um, I used to call him the Grim Repo Man. The Repo Man, because he started raising the repo rate in South Africa, increasing interest rates. Sure. Um, yeah, okay. Well, before we got distracted by Tito Mboweni, going back to Americans trying to get rid of American democracy, is that now how odious it is around the world? Certainly um, places like um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and of course uh, Yemen and, um, and Gaza know very well the true costs of American democracy, what American democracy is. Americans will tell you that American democracy is voting for the right people. And the right people are people that Americans like. And if you vote for someone that the Americans don't like, then they know that you don't understand democracy. Yeah, that's the American's view of democracy. It's not something based on, uh, on a, a, a warm humanity idea of like, you know, we're all capable of making rational decisions about ourselves. And, and as such, we're capable of understanding our worlds and um, everyone basically wants to look after their children and uh, have nice infrastructure and so on. And um, they're entitled to, to choose who among their peers should be one who should rule them. Um, being that we're all equal citizens in the eyes of the law. We may not be uh, equal humans in the eyes of Allah, because, of course, our piety is the only thing that makes a difference. Mm, you know, the thing about uh, the Gaza genocide is we go on about we go on about it a bit, don't we? In a way, isn't it a bit like inviting a lot of to come lower down every time we're speaking about it? Gaza, 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 speaking about Netanyahu and the evil ones in in Tel Aviv. You know, it can kind of like get you on this self-righteous bandwagon uh, where you really just start seeing everything uh, in terms of black and white. There are no nuances. There are no colors. There's no blue sky or green fields. Everything is just a grim silhouette. When that happens, it's very difficult to kind of like see people's faces and see individuals and see the humanity. Forgiveness, forgiveness. Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam took over Makkah, not with force of arms, but through forgiveness. Hmm? The greatest victory in Islam was achieved with the weapon of forgiveness, not the weapon of the sword. When Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his army was marching onto Makkah, the Meccans were terrified that they were going to be massacred. Nabi Karim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, uh, anyone uh, who fears for his safety uh, can go take refuge in, in, in the Qibla uh, or they can go to several uh, houses of people that he said, like say, um, uh, who is it? Uh, Umayyah. Uh, if, you, if you go into various um, people's houses and you stay there, you will be safe. Do not worry, you will be safe. And then afterwards, um, uh, he, did, he, he even took bait from uh, Umayyah's wife, the one who had chewed uh, the, the, uh, the liver of Nabi Karim, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uncle Hamza, radiallahu anhu. 
although he looked away from her as he took her bait. He, he turned his face away from her. But he took her bait. And that took some doing. Are we, are, are we in danger of, you know, just rolling everything up into a, you know, because it, it, it really can get too much. These times, whew, you know, there, 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 there be many times in my life when, um, uh, since I became a Muslim, things just aren't making sense. Things just aren't making sense. You can't see a solution. There doesn't seem to be a way forward. There seems to be such a huge big gap in between where I am and where I seem to need to go. I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get there. You know, it's in those times where things just aren't making sense, where things just aren't fair, you know, where you, you, you have to fall back into complete and utterly, utter dependence on Allah Ta'ala. Um... There come times in our lives where we need to start talking forgiveness. But is this time, is this the time to start talking forgiveness? As the children are still dying, the war continues. But as I said at the beginning of the show, it's nice to see these cases coming before the International Court of Justice. What does it mean for Israel to occupy Palestine? It's currently being argued before the, uh, before the International Court right now. The legal consequences arriving from the policies and practices of Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, what's commonly referred to as the West Bank. Uh, as a result of the Oslo Peace Accord, uh, Israel and the Palestinian Authority were given given joint security um, control over the West Bank. The West Bank was divided into areas A, B, and C. Areas A were areas where Palestinians lived. Areas B were where some Israelis were living. And area C was uh, general open land. Uh, rural land beyond the towns, which was basically almost entirely Palestinian. And of course, as, as a result of the PLO accepting Oslo Peace Accords, the Israelis suddenly had the, the legal right to start implementing laws in the West Bank. And they started manipulating the situation so that Area C became the main area of contestation between um, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And uh, using their right to now implement law over Area C, they started using things like, uh, like water laws and, and managing the water table laws to start forcing Palestinian farmers off the land so that their settlers, settlements could expand. I mean, it's really some some really horrible stories coming out of that, of, um, of of villages having their water cut off and then having to turn to the Israelis for water supply. After they've shown the Israelis how to find the water, how to find the groundwater, 
then they have to turn to the, 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 the Israelis say, uh, okay, you're well that you've had here for nearly a thousand years. I'm afraid he's upsetting the water table and he's interfering with the rights of the Israelis in that little settlement to access water. Um, and now the, uh, the water authority, which is under our control, has deemed that your well has to be cut off. Then they'll come cut off your well. And then you'll have to approach them to provide you with water. And then they will provide you with sewage water for your drinking water to water your lands. And they're doing the same thing with Gaza now, the water that they've been sending through to Gaza. But nowhere at all throughout all of this time has anyone come and examined from a legal perspective at the ICJ the legal consequences arising out of the policies and practices of Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem. That's on at the moment. Um, we can't cross live. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'd find ourselves right in the middle of, of, of some uh, complicated some complicated um, rulings and so on. Uh, it, it, it really is difficult to, to, to cover these things uh, for short periods. Uh, but in, in the interim, South Africa uh, a few days ago approached, uh, re-approached the, the ICJ, telling them uh, that uh, Israel preparing to um, invade Rafa uh, needed needed an urgent interdict basically they uh, they approached uh, the court uh, requesting additional additional provisional measures the court issued a, a statement over the weekend uh, saying in the case concerning the application of the convention of the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide in the Gaza strip known as South Africa versus Israel the court having duly considered South Africa's letter dated 12 February and Israel's observations thereon received 15 February took the following decision, which was, com which was communicated to the parties. The court notes that the most recent developments in the Gaza Strip and in Rafa in particular would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences, as stated by the United Nations Secretary General on 7 February. This perilous situation demands immediate and effective implementation of provisional measures indicated by the court in its order on 26 January, which are applicable throughout the Gaza Strip, including in Rafa, and does not demand the indication of additional provisional measures, says the court. The court emphasizes that the State of Israel remains bound to fully comply with its obligations under the Genocide Convention and with the said order, including by ensuring the safety and security of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. So, in effect, the court has decided that it is not going to intervene. It's decided that its decision, made on the 26th of, February, of January, uh, is sufficient and uh, as such, it's not going to amend its order or order any additional protection for Gazans in Rafa. Over a million of them are, are, are squeezed into Rafa, and uh, they're surrounded uh, by genocidaires, the stormtroopers of uh, the Nazi regime of Tel Aviv. And they have got only one thing on their mind, and that is murder. And in the meantime now, uh, Israel's, uh, Israel's duly daily business practices are also being examined by the court. Uh, 
Yeah, well, we had um, the uh, the Ugandan judge who voted against all of those decisions, very clearly having taken a bribe. And uh, just a few days after that hearing, we saw how the bribe was being paid. We saw it like, like, like open, clear for everyone to see. She was then elected as vice president of the ICJ. That was her reward. The, re the, the, the bribe wasn't made by outside parties. The bribe was made by the actual court itself. The International Court of Justice, having been forced into a corner by South Africa, having been forced to say that, yes, looks like genocide, walks like genocide, but we're not going to say for absolutely sure it is genocide until we've seen all evidence beyond reasonable doubt. Every one of you knows that we've already seen all the evidence that is required. But they want to, they say that they don't, they're not going to make that final decision until, you know, an exhaustive um, process has been undergone. But everyone knows it's genocide. And the, and the court was very upset that it had to be put into that position. That it would have to say to its masters, you're committing genocide and you're breaking the very laws that you founded your own countries on. So just after that ICJ ruling, where the Ugandan judge, whose name slips me right now, Kabinde, I think it was, um, she has now been promoted as vice president of the ICJ. What does that say to you? When the ICJ itself, when it's got this very clearly rogue judge that's gone off on a tangent on her own and has voted against all of the other judges in that genocide case, and that is a genocide case. That is like the, 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 the very crime and, and the desire to fight that crime that gave birth to the International Court of Justice in the first place in, in uh, 1945. Now the court turns around, the very exigenesis of its creation. This judge votes against it. And the whole world can see, and everyone is horrified. Even, even Ugandans, the Ugandan government goes to the extent of distancing itself from the judge. And, uh, and what happens? Just a few days later, she is made vice president of the ICJ. Julia Sebutinde. You just need to do a Google search for... Um, Ugandan judge. You don't even even have to say ICJ. That is how notorious she has become. If you do a search for Ugandan judge, well, Google knows. Yeah, you're looking for that um, apologist for war crimes, Julia Sebutinde. Uh, anyway, she's got her reward already. The bribe has been paid. She has already taken her profits. Now that same court is trying to decide today what are the legal consequences of um, Israel's occupation of the occupied territories. Uh, it's, a, it's something that should have happened in 1967. Hmm? When, uh, when, when Israel in, invaded the Palestinian territories that had been designated as Palestinian in 1948, they invaded and took over those territories. 
immediately then this case that is taking place today should have been held. The legal consequences of Israel's occupation is now only now being looked at from a legal perspective. Up until now, it's been a political perspective and a moral perspective from our uh, from our viewpoint. But as far as the Americans and the Europeans are concerned, the only morality is the need to wash away their sins of hating Jews for 2,000 years. And the only way, as far as they're concerned, for, for wiping away their sins is to steal Palestinians' land. You know, you do one crime in order to pay for another crime. You know, any legal expert will tell you that there's absolutely no foundational basis at all. You only deepen your guilt, especially if it's uh, supposedly this crime of anti-Semitism. And you go around to some more Semites and you take their land away. You're actually you're actually creating tension between Semites. You're worsening the condition of the Jews and you're aggravating the situation of the Muslims. And and clearly that evil self that is the European soul remains as dark and hard and tiny as it ever has been. There is no reformation of Europe's soul. Sure, they're loving the, the, the they're loving the Jews now, you know, but only because doing so makes them good people and hurts the Muslims. They say that they're opposed to Hitler, and yet today they're making Hitler look like an amateur. Certainly, they have ambitions to um, exceed the excesses of Hitler. And they're very fast um, setting their sights on the mayhem that was caused by the Mongolian uh, invasions in the 12 and 1300s. Mongolians would go into a city and completely destroy it and kill every single citizen, man, woman, child, dog, chicken. A bit like the French in Mauritania and Algeria 100 years ago. Even after the Nuremberg trials, France was still following regular bouts of pacification in its North African territories. France was behind the, the decapitation spree that spread across the Sahara in the 1970s. Yes, um, my mother fought with the, well, she didn't fight, she was a nurse. She served in the British Army like a good Irish woman served in the British Army in Malaysia. Uh, I've, I've seen pictures of, of British soldiers in Malaysia chopping off people's heads. Terrorist heads. We're chopping off their heads. Good heavens above. Isn't that quite a terrible thing to do? Yes, well, you know, it's, it's the tropics, you know, and um, we, we, we need to take these heads back to headquarters for identification purposes. Huh? That's after the Nuremberg trials. That's after the never, never, never again. The Mau Mau rebellion in Kenya. What the British were getting up to after the Nuremberg trials. After Europe's never, never and never again moment. The French were doing exactly the same in Algiers, in Mauritania, Spain, in Morocco. Pacification, the French called it. Um, they say that they have changed, but they have not changed. 
You know that Europe has not changed because in order for the, for the Jews to feel safe from Europeans, they need a homeland outside of Europe. You see, the Europeans couldn't, couldn't afford to do the genuine thing and apologize for the Holocaust and 2,000 years of anti-Semitism, as they say, by giving Israel a homeland in Europe. That would have been the thing to do. We have hurt you. Now we will take something of ours and we'll give it to you in compensation. You can't take something of someone else and give it to them in compensation. No. The Europeans didn't give them European soil to pay for this. And for a very practical reason. Jews aren't safe in Europe. Just like um, Africans aren't safe in Europe. Chinese are not safe in Europe. Look what happened when um, Mittal took over Arcelor Mittal. I mean Arcelor. Arcelor was France's like ESCOM, ISCO, ISCO, Iron and Steel Corporation. Arcelor was France's, France's ISCO. It was its state steel corporation. And now it had run into financial problems, was unable to compete in international markets. And so the Indians came around. The Mittal brothers came around and said, well, we'll buy them out. Wow, man, you should have seen the shock and the horror in France. You can go and Google it. Go and Google. Mittal takes, uh, takes over Arcelor, French reaction. Oh, oh, boy. They were horrified. The Europeans were horrified. The dark-skinned people were coming and not just buying anything. They were buying the state silverware. Yeah. Very clearly then, near the turn of the century, of this century, already uh, the clock had stopped ticking. And uh, Europe was no longer that, um, that homeland of prosperity and, um, and advanced living following on the coattails of the American consumer. Yeah, the American and the consumer very much last century's um, story. And, um, and the realities of it are that Europe, that Europe as a competitive uh, land mass is steadily, steadily falling further and further behind the curve. It has always been that... Um, great uh, technological partner to the United States. But increasingly, uh, the United States has become uh, the hawk in this relationship, and uh, the European countries are very little more than, than ducklings. And uh, we, we, we've seen it in, in support for the war in Ukraine. Although America and whatever power structure that operates They've been able to bring the politicians on board, but whether or not the Europeans themselves are on board is another matter entirely. Now, even as the politicians are going into Ukraine and, and uh, promising everlasting support for the Ukrainian struggle, the costs of the Israeli war in Gaza are already taking their toll. Volodymyr Zelensky, according to stories coming out on the media today, Volodymyr Zelensky, according to the opposition in Ukraine, is preparing to flee Ukraine. He's got himself a $16 million apartment in the UAE. 
the opposition is making big, a big noise about this at the moment. Uh, and then there was also, there's also, I don't know if you've come across the uh, Let's Assassinate Macron um, plot uh, by the Ukrainian government itself. Apparently there were two um, French mercenary-style kind of guys who were in Ukraine a while back who had gone over in order to help them in their, um, in their um, war against the Russians and then find themselves being pulled into a false flag operation that would have involved inviting Emmanuel Macron to Ukraine on, on a support tour and then assassinating him, either assassinating Emmanuel Macron or one of his entourage. You know, an attempted assassination on Emmanuel Macron at least seemed to have been the bid by the Ukrainians in order to build up support in Europe for themselves. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, uh, le, 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 let me see if I can give you some uh, some details uh, of, of of that one. We we we're really kind of uh, wandering about a little bit today, but that is uh, that, that that is the nature of the world today. Um, uh, the, the, you you could say that it's a it's um, a conspiracy theory. But it did result in Emmanuel Macron cancelling, cancelling his planned visit to Ukraine. Uh, let's see, coming out on global research today, the idea that the Kiev regime is sharply divided is sharply divided as its interest groups are contending for power and influence, mostly in a manner not dissimilar to a hyena brawl, has become an axiom at this point. This has gone so far that those loyal to Volodymyr Zelensky are ready to go after their own comrades in arms in order to further his agenda. A fact best illustrated by the recent shooting down of the Russian IL-76MD transport aircraft packed with well over 60 Ukrainian POWs, prisoners of war, including at least a dozen members of the infamous Azov battalion. The purely neo-Nazi unit has been involved in gruesome war crimes against the people of Donbass or anyone else refusing to subscribe to their repulsive ideology. The death of such people is surely not something to lament over, but it certainly raises numerous questions. Namely, if the Kiev regime is ready to target its most loyal henchmen with absolutely zero remorse, who else could possibly feel safe? It seems France just learned this lesson, albeit the hard way, as is usually the case when dealing with the neo-Nazi junta. According to Vasily Pozorov, a former Ukrainian intelligence officer, it seems that the Kiev regime has started hunting down some French mercenaries and volunteers in its own ranks. These are namely businessman Adrien Bourdon de Moipajot and his associate Gennady Guernamavich. Guermanovich, Guermanovich. They were killed on February 1. Oleskander Prokudin, the head of the Kherson administration, claimed the two French citizens were allegedly killed in a Russian airstrike. French President Emmanuel Macron himself spoke about their deaths, insisting they were humanitarians. So you can imagine what kind of humanitarians they were. Same kind of guys that come to Israel and organize. Like, for instance, in, um, I think it was 2007, France. France was caught by the Niger, which has subsequently thrown them out of the country and has staged a coup. The Niger caught 
uh, Arivum, the French uh, parastatal um, nuclear company. Uh, it may, it's, uh, processes uranium and it manufactures nuclear power plants. It was going to manufacture our nuclear power plant under Taubenbecki uh, at the time. And that was cancelled by Jacob Zuma. Taubenbecki managed to put that whole nuclear deal together while on holiday. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing. 2007, I think it was, just before 2008's um, um, load shedding started. Yeah, Taubenbecki, while on holiday. He was on holiday and he was informed by ESCOM uh, executives while on holiday that uh, that there was a major national crisis developing in South Africa regarding the electricity generation. And uh, by mid-January, he and Ima and uh, not it wasn't Emmanuel Macron, his predecessor, even a more odious person, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. He and Nicolas Sarkozy were walking hand in hand along the Esplanade in Cape Town um, after having secured a nuclear deal with Arriva. Jacob Zuma came in and then tried to sell a trillion rand nuclear deal with the Russians. And I think that one that one was also cancelled, and now there's another one in the offing. The only thing that's safe, saving, saving us from this kind of like ANC-backed nuclear meltdown here in South Africa is the fact that the ANC is a cannibal party. Now, before they start accusing me of racism everything, and saying cannibals, uh, you know, there's never been cannibalism in Africa that I've ever encountered. But anyway, I mean, that arose out of a whole colonial legacy. We could go on to that at some other stage. The ANC is a cannibal party because each new administration that comes in, every time there's a new ANC leader, that ANC's henchmen go out and take out all of the previous ANC leaders' henchmen. There's no continuity of policy. Uh, there cannot be any continuity of policy because the people that are supposed to implement the policy are always taken out. And basically, that's been our problem since uh, Jacob Zuma came and took over in 2008 at Polokwane. Uh, I, I was working a year later with a friend uh, doing um, public relations for um, the Rustenburg municipality. And uh, we went in there just ahead of the end of uh, Zuma's it was it was the local elections had been won yes and now now zuma's guys were coming in on the local election on the local government level and we went in there with a brief to uh, we were given the brief by the by Mbeki's guys but now we've given the brief we've got the money to implement this um, pr policy over a year so it doesn't matter what the Zoomites are going to do. Uh, we've been given the budget and we've got the money already. So we've got like a year to implement policy there. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. When we went into our first council meeting with the councillors, basically every single one of them knew he wasn't going to be there next month. And the very next month they weren't there. Yep, the Zoomites came in. Now, you see, every single politician there holding a position has signed on, like say it's the, the security guy, he's got to sign on a whole lot of security companies to, to guard installations uh, for the municipality. 
So now, you know, you've got all these Buddha companies coming through, like, you know, they've always been paying these things, and they've got another whole new emergent uh, security companies coming through, and they want to take over from these Buddha. And then these Buddha have now made friends uh, during the Mbeki era with a whole lot of ANC guys, and now they've got this, like, sort of zebra security companies. There's black and white, but now you've got the, the Zuma guys coming and want to take out those guys. So they took out everything. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. You know, Mbeki was uh, in power for uh, eight years. You could say ten years. In the first two years of the of the Mandela era, the last two years of Mandela, Mbeki was the effective president. So for ten years, Mbeki had been in there, and his guys had been implementing the Mandela dream, and everything was kind of like looking okay. But it was starting to get sold out as far as the populists in ANC were concerned. Zuma came in on Polokwane, having hijacked the uh, the almost defunct uh, branch system that had been neglected by Mbeki, who wanted to lead from the center. And so by, by going around to the periphery and then organizing uh, the hijacking of some of the local local branches that the central ANC didn't pay any attention to, they found themselves outvoted at Polokwane. And that's basically how Zuma took over. But uh, when you've had 10 years of people setting up agreements with companies and getting project pipelines going and so on, you can go speak to bankers and lawyers when you put these projects together, you know. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, coordination. You've got to get parties together. You've got to get financing for the whole thing. You've got to get like a project uh, place. You've got to get property bought. You've got to get the whole thing rezoned. You've got to get I mean, your partners. You've got to get your anchor clients, all of these kinds of things. All of that was thrown out of the window when, when Zuma came in and his new guys came in and then they started making their own new projects. Everything fell apart. Simply because the ANC is a cannibal party. The one, the new administration eats the old administration. And so nothing ever goes anywhere. That's basically one of the main problems happening in South Africa today. Maybe I should actually write an article on it. South Africa's biggest problem is the ANC is a cannibal party. It eats itself. That is the problem with um, South Africa today. It's the reason why the ANC is doing so badly in the polls. And uh, it indicates that the ANC itself has never been able to get its own business in order. Uh, but anyway, they, 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 phew, as I say... We are, we are speaking about uh, France, Nicolas Sarkozy, now we're back with ANC. But anyway, okay, moving away. So you see, like, like signing a nuclear deal. Hmm? Mbeki apparently got a very complex uh, process, uh, procedure, a nuclear deal, signed over a holiday period. So you know that that was a very dodgy nuclear deal. And everyone says, yeah, Mbeki was such a nice guy, he must come back. Zuma is so corrupt. Oh, well, uh, morality. The morality of apartheid hmm? was like, oh, so until, until the ANC came along, South Africa was a nice and neat little country. We were very moral. No, 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 we weren't. That was like a, a real, yeah, the, 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 the nationalists were real kafirs. The nationalists were the real kafirs. They were the ones who tried to um, rewrite 
God's law, according to the white man's rules, the rule-based economy. I mean, you, you, you know, maybe, maybe the roads would be cleaner if the Nats are still in power. But believe me, uh, the Israelis and the Americans would be full on in this country. This country would be so much under Zionist control if the Nats were still in power. You want to say that Yad was better under apartheid? Mm -mm 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 -mm. It was not. It was not, and we're still better off today. Because at least this, this kind of situation where we're in, inshallah, can lead us to something better and different. Apartheid isn't going to take us anywhere. It was never, ever going to take us anywhere. Apartheid has always been about extraction, about rape and pillage. Now at least the ANC politicians talk about Yarwin uh, beneficiation even as they sell out the country to their mining partners, you know. <laughs> Wide-ranging talk today. Yeah. So Kiev, uh, so Kiev uh, was assassinating, uh, assassinated two, uh, two Frenchmen. And uh, what were they up to? What were they up to? Up to? Well, they'd gone into um, Ukraine to help the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians felt that the support was waning in Europe. They need to get that support going in Europe. And the best way to do that is to kill Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, you can. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not going to go too much into the story because whenever you deal with these stories, you know. Uh, uh, you, you really do get into the conspiracy theory world because then you start talking about spooks, you start talking about the CIA <clears throat> uh, and in the intelligence services, the five eyes. And those guys, there's nothing but lies. Lies, 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 lies. It's a reason why, you know, they can get all of the data in the world. They can get 20 supercomputers collecting all of this data um, analyzing all of this data to the most sophisticated algorithm, algorithms that have ever been devised by humankind. And uh, it will spit out the results. Those results will still be interpreted by a human mind that is incapable of appreciating the truth. The supercomputers can tell people to do this, do that, do this, do that. Even if it tells them the truth, say the supercomputer was able to come up with Allah Ta'ala's haq, would come up with solutions that were perfectly in tune with Allah Ta'ala's haq. Do you think it would be able to help people? No, it wouldn't. Look what happened when Nabi Karim came to the world. He gave them haq. He gave them proofs. And still, the people would not believe. They would not believe. So the liars in America are incapable of, of, of understanding. No matter how advanced their sophisticated uh, computers become, no matter how much data it crunches, when it comes out at the end, it's going to have to deal with a lying heart and a lying mind. So anyway, yes. Ukraine is getting desperate. Ukraine knows. Zelensky knows. You know, even as Europe makes those reassuring sounds that they are with him to the end, 
he knows that they're already getting ready to um, to dump him off the table. He has become too expensive. He didn't do the killing like the Israelis did. And look at it. Three months and we've gone and slaughtered as more people than you did in Ukraine in like two years. Why are we bothering to deal with an amateur like like uh, Volodymyr Zelensky when we've got guys like that professional Bibi Netanyahu showing you how to commit genocide? Don't you see that's how you're supposed to kill people and get that turnover going for the um, for the uh, military industrial complex? And, you know, even as the U.S. is uh, pushing for a ceasefire, well, suppose pushing for a ceasefire, I really hate these terms, pushing for a ceasefire. Uh, you know, the United States, if it wanted to, if it had courage, if it really was the home of the brave, could organize and enter the hostilities today. I mean, they, in five minutes' time, they could do it. But they won't. They won't. Because Israel has just turned into, it's like hit the real sweet spot of profitability. I mean, the, 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 uh, this is the kind of genocide that you need. You know, you know the, the 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 billionaires in Martha's Vineyard, um, um, just off the east coast of America. They love Bibi, even though they know that Bibi is like headed to jail. They love him. He's the kind of business partner they want. Uh, none of it can come back to them as far as they can see. They're just a shareholder of a company. But Bibi is making them such sweet money. Such sweet money. They just love him so much. They just love Bibi Netanyahu. Hmm. He has shown, he has shown the dictators of the world exactly how to conduct a profitable genocide. 28,985 people so far. 29,000 people dead in Gaza. And the U.S. is still sending weapons through. Even as Mossad officials are saying that children in Gaza before deserve to be starved to death. And Israel has formally rejected the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. Its, uh, its officials... It's uh, senior politicians and so on uh, continue calling for genocide and acting on genocide in absolute contravention of the ICJ's order. The ICJ, according to some uh, legal experts after its 26 February ruling, where it didn't order the, the ceasefire, the experts said, well, you know, it couldn't really order the ceasefire because it was pretty sure, it was pretty sure by everyone involved that uh, Israel was going to ignore that order. So, of course, Israel immediately turned around and said, this is a victory. Uh, but in actual fact, as the court has made clear with that uh, February 16 ruling that I read out at the beginning of the show, if it's... Uh, orders are implemented. Everything necessary has already been ordered for Israel to stop killing people. As Naledi Pandor said after that hearing, no more killing of Palestinians means no more killing of Palestinians. If Israel implements this, the genocide will stop. Well, Israel hasn't implemented it, it hasn't stopped its politicians from calling for genocide. And it hasn't stopped its soldiers from committing genocide.
Actually, there has been a pause at Rafa, but only because they basically destroyed every, everything they can up until, you know, it's basically, they'll be going over a work that they've done before. Now they're stuck at Rafa. This is the, the last remaining rump of the Palestinians, and they want to remove it completely. And they have ignored every single order that the ICJ has made. So the ICJ should, in actual fact, I feel, on February 26th, it should have ordered an immediate ceasefire. Because Israel is ignoring everything else anyway. So let Israel immediately be recognized as the legal pariah of the world. That's what the court should have done if it wanted effective justice. But the court doesn't want that. And we can see that from the promotion of the Ugandan judge's name is always slipping in my mind. Yes, this is a very reluctant uh, human rights law being applied uh, for Muslims. Very reluctantly. huh? You can see it. You can see it. The court, the court doesn't want to give us this. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't want to hold its masters accountable. And you can see there's some very horrible, ugly things going on behind the scenes with the promotion of, of um, Judge Nkabinde. Sebutinde, not Nkabinde. Oh, that's Namibian. Sebutinde. Well, uh, they're making the arguments now. I am going to go and try and listen to some of that if I can. It's coming up to one o'clock. Your children are just finishing school. It's time for Zor. Azan should be going soon. Isn't it nice? Your children can just call you and say, come, come fetch me. And you can go and fetch them. Yes, we should give thanks. Alhamdulillah. 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 Oh Allah, do not make our hearts hard by this. Oh Allah, keep us, keep us close to you. And you say in the Quran uh, that you are closest to the one who relents. You're closest to the one who forgives. Oh Allah, and make us the ones who are closest to you. Jazakum Allah for joining us.